Chapter 4 Leeds Students In 1970, Leeds was not the bustling modern metropolitan centre it is today. To me, it was a mucky old mill town that didn't attract me at all. The buildings were sooty and austere, the people blunt and unfriendly. As far as I was concerned, the only thing going for it was the wonderful football team Don Revy had built to be one of the best in Europe. I didn't like being referred to as either pal, cock or love by the locals, as I wasn't a tin of dog food, a male chicken or an object of over-familiarity. This was evidence, however, if any was needed, that I was turning into the pretentious post-adolescent prick that was a prerequisite of being a student back then. I really liked the Students' Union issue white long-sleeved t-shirt with lead student emblazoned in green on the front, particularly because it irritated my friends in Hull and my Bridtown teammates. Bloody sponging students was a description I found amusing. The buzz and promise of the 60s were giving way to the reality of the 70s in a country heading for economic trouble. Industrial strife between overpowerful trade unions and Dickensian employers became the norm rather than just isolated flare-ups. As with Brexit today, not everybody in the country had shared in the good times and the result was disillusionment and division. Older industries were having to face radical change or contemplate extinction. As for popular culture, England lost their World Cup in Mexico, the Beatles broke up in disharmony rather than peace and love. Dylan went country and music in general became more trivial, simple pop rather than the social rock I loved. The mood was captured musically for me by James Taylor, who was now playing endlessly in my bedroom, together of course with the genius that is Neil Young. Don McLean got it about right for us in his iconic anthem American Pie, even if the day the music died for him was Buddy Holly's death in the 50s, rather than how it felt for us in the 70s. Personal relationships formed in the halcyon days at school dissolved as people went their different ways, facing the reality of having to earn a living. I was starting a career I didn't particularly want in a place I didn't want to be. I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. Even the joy I found in football during my precocious teens had waned as I began to contemplate it as a job. When you've had a nice childhood, I guess the change into being independent is more challenging. Life's journey is from dependence to independence to interdependence and I was well into the second stage. I blamed Leeds Polytechnic, or more accurately, a youth employment officer in Beverley. His advice during my visit to investigate opportunities for work that would allow me to go for trials arranged at Aston Villa and Barnsley was to use my A-level success to go to university. You'll get a month off easy enough at university, he said. They don't do much in the first year anyway, and with A-levels like these you'll walk onto a course. Just look at Steve Highway, the Liverpool winger, he said exhibiting decent football knowledge. He's a student who was doing all right balancing the two. He was on a roll now. You'll want something outdoors, I suppose. He went to his reference book of university courses and started to thumb through it. He stopped early on at B. B for building. 
BSC in building, Leeds Polytechnic. Only up the road. Course starts in a fortnight. I'll give them a ring. And that was it. All this with me hardly saying a word. Future life direction sorted. No well-researched, studied contemplation for me. Just a ten-year dream of being a professional footballer compromised in five minutes. The boy with no concept of shape and form, as displayed in the 11 plus failure, and with no practical skills whatsoever, from the Scullery 4 incident onwards, was going to be a bloody builder. Fresher's registration took place one rainy day in September 1970. My dad drove me to Leeds in his last act of protective parenthood, the relative silence of the trip indicative of the fact that neither of us liked what was going on. The route to Leeds was all A63 in those days, before the advent of the M62. There were river crossings at Goole and a toll at Selby. The journey took over an hour and a half in all. Into Leeds city centre, off the hedgerow up Calverley Street and past the sooty town hall, which is now gleaming white and an adornment to Millennium Square. Onto the charmless modern steel and glass boxes of the Polytechnic situated at the top of the hill, where I arrived with a sense of foreboding. Up the outside steps and into the refectory that I was to become all too familiar with, I joined an eclectic bunch of all shapes, ages and sizes. From mature students seeking a qualification to help with their career, to kids like me who didn't know what else they would do. Predictably for these times, there were no women. The guides were largely engineering types, all earnestly practical and conforming, not a bit like me or anybody I'd been hanging around with. I felt like an outsider. Mr Bulmer, Eric Bulmer. The roll call began with the name of a spoiled, arrogant heir to a Leeds building family business and to whom I would later dispense a good hiding on an outward bound surveying trip in the lakes. He started it, I finished it, but most of my fellow students would agree that he seriously had it coming. Most had turned up, but it became evident one or two hadn't. Mr Hobbs, Stephen Hobbs. Little smiley Steve from Hunstanton became my companion for the first few days, until we found we had nothing in common apart from our loneliness. Mr Perks from Birmingham. What the bloody hell was this? We have ourselves a character. Wearing John Lennon's spectacles on his friendly freckled face with frizzy hair and big imperfect smile that was no doubt challenging for his dentist. Trousers way short of his big bobber boots, the tartan shirt matched nothing else he wore and was only outdone by his Wolverhampton Wanderers scarf with beware of the Doog emblazoned on as a tribute to their iconic Irish centre forward Derek Dugan. I was later to share a flat with Perksy, my favourite ever Brummie, and I suspect the first fan of Slade to go deaf. Come on, feel the noise. Well, he certainly did. We were to get a flat together in the Chapeltown district after we graduated, at the height of the murderous exploits of the Yorkshire Ripper. The registrar eventually got to S. Mr Sewell, I wasn't used to being called Mr but said yes immediately, as did somebody else. I was surprised, as mine is not a common surname. Mr Sewell from Hull. 
For some reason, he dispensed with the Christian name, and this added to the drama, for once again two of us said, Yes. I looked around to see who was taking the piss. It was a slim, funny-looking kid, with unkempt long blonde hair, a round face, and full lips. Dennis Sewell was no Bulmer, thank God, but a nice, unassuming, gentle sort from the East Hull Building Company that has been in his family since 1876. Little did I know then, but he didn't want to be there either, preferring something like ornithology or zoology and the natural world. I was from the Sewell Fruit Fraternity that had been around since my granddad started it in the early years of the 20th century. His family had much deeper and more conventional roots in the whole business community. We glanced at each other and simultaneously looked away. This chance meeting was to change the course of both of our lives, but not just yet. We teamed up with different cohorts who didn't interface much and so never got to know each other well in those early days. Also, I went home at weekends to play football and earn my train fare and beer money for the following week. From registration, I went on to see some digs that had been allocated, there being no halls of residence at the poly. Dad and I found the semi-detached house of Mrs Cockcraft in the western suburbs, went up the path and knocked on the door. She wasn't in, but one of the other students boarding there showed us around. We didn't like what we saw. It wasn't that clean and it was very untidy. Dad was used to my mother's fastidiousness and wasn't having me stay there, so he brought me home. After discussions with the college admin, I returned two days later by train to view alternative lodgings up in Oakwood by the clock tower on the boundary of Roundair Park, a much nicer area if a rather long bus ride. Waiting for the bus by the John Lewis store in the city centre, I noted one destination, Belle Isle, which was a Bob Dylan country song on his latest album, Self Portrait. I thought both name and song too lovely to be associated with such a dump. Number 28 Oakwood Avenue was up a steep hill from the little centre at the bottom of Roundair Park and terminated in a large wooded area that bounded the main road into Leeds. The houses were terrace red brick and impressively solid. They were huge with both a basement and attic, giving four floors in all. Mrs Foster was a larger-than-life West Riding lady with big features and over-permed brown hair that looked like a helmet. Her prominent lower teeth displayed the effects of a lifetime of smoking and her substantial bosom was well strapped in. This ample frame oozed attitude. She and her much older invalid husband who could have been a model for Grandad in the TV series Mrs Brown's Boys, lived on the ground floor, with two upper floors given over to a dozen or so students in what I don't doubt was a tidy little business. The basement had a substantial kitchen, where she worked and partially lived, and next to it was a dining and common room with TV where we would take our breakfast and evening meals. A large hatch in the wall adjoined these two very different communities which relied upon each other, demonstrating mutual respect. A respect that was now to be severely tested. By me. On my first evening in residence, I unwittingly went off limits from our common room area, down two steps and into her kitchen. I was really thirsty, 
and there was a bottle of concentrated PLJ on the side, and I thought it was up for grabs and part of the service. I poured myself a slug, diluted it at the tap and drank it gratefully. It was so refreshing, I repeated the process. This started what was affectionately later known as PLJ Gate, after the Watergate scandal that would see US President Richard Nixon impeached. Mrs Foster quickly spotted the diminishing contents of her bottle of cordial and called a crisis meeting of her young tenants to establish the culprit. I should have owned up, but dared not, and this precipitated an investigation way out of proportion to the crime. It became a fascinating whodunit on the scale of Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap. The longer it went on, the more difficult it got for me to confess. Suspicions grew between housemates, with Machiavellian interplay to try and reveal and offer up the criminal. I kept my cool, realising nobody could be trusted in this blame game. It only came to an end when I precipitated another house crisis, but this time there was no doubt that I was in the frame. It was as if I had never left school. Being denied the position of prefect, I never had the privilege of a common room, so I valued this professional little setup with a settee, three tables, a small TV on an upper shelf, and a hot food cabinet that kept our breakfast and evening meal warm. On each table were the usual condiments, salt, pepper, vinegar, and my beloved brown sauce that I got into the habit of having with most things, even to this day. It wasn't HP, or my hands fruity, but I was prepared to make do. I always went through my ritual of shaking the bottle vigorously from side to side to ensure the content was to my liking. Unfortunately, during this particular evening meal, Mrs Foster's frugal practice of diluting the sauce into a runny liquid, together with a mischievous housemate's idea of loosening the bottle top, conspired against me. The meal that evening was fish and chips, so I naturally homed in on the sauce and proceeded with my vigorous bottle-shaking ritual. The top came off immediately, as the practical jokers had planned, but what followed must have wildly exceeded their expectations. The brown liquid ejaculated in a perfect stream, starting at the ceiling by the window, making its way across the polystyrene tiles to the opposite kitchen wall and down to the hatch and into the kitchen. By some miracle, it slashed through the opening and onto the kitchen table where Mr Foster was sitting doing his pool scooping as his wife cooked his dinner. Mrs Foster exploded. Mimicking my mum, she hot-footed it through to our room to find me, sauce bottle in hand, mouth open, my housemates wetting themselves with glee. We engaged in a standoff, staring each other down, neither of us knowing exactly how to react. It seemed to last an age to a backdrop of giggling and sniggering, until Mrs Foster broke the spell by bursting out into a hearty laughter and exclaiming, You silly little bugger. I thought briefly of seizing the conciliatory moment to admit to the PLJ incident, but it quickly passed. That crime was to remain a mystery until now. This heralded the start of a decent relationship between me and my landlady that lasted till I graduated. Going home every weekend, I could never be as close to her as those seven-day full-time residents, but it was as good as it could be and as good as it needed to be. 
The final big test of our relationship was reserved for my last year. It was a time where streaking, as running naked became known as, became a daring pastime. There was even a song dedicated to the practice in the charts. Yes, they call him the streak, the fastest thing on two feet. Don't look, Ethel, the song went. A night out of the Gipton pub, a few pints and a discussion about this new phenomena led to a group of about 10 of us agreeing to meet up naked at the front door of number 28 when we got back. We would then streak around the clock tower in Oakwood and into the local fish shop to order our supper before bringing it back home to the common room. I should have known that most of the others would bottle it, and when just myself and Mike Dyer met giggling at the door, it came as no real surprise. Mike was a first-year student studying music, and evidently as good a sport as he was a drummer. We had to make a quick decision as to whether or not to go through with it. He who dares suffers severe embarrassment. Off we went. Out of the front gate, left down Oakwood Avenue at a fair sprint. Mike was younger, but I was fitter and quicker. Onto the main road and a quick executive decision to miss out the loop around the clock tower and so on to the parade of shops and into the fish shop. No queue, thank God. Don't meet anyone's gaze. Have they can chips twice, please. All steady and matter of fact. Shit, no money. Bad planning. Let's get back. Down the parade, up Oakwood, Mikey's flagging. He stopped giggling, but he's still breathing as I can hear him gasping behind me. Refuge is near, up the path and the big front door and a hero's welcome. No way. The bastards have locked it. Very funny. We'll have to ring the doorbell. It's a long wait until we see Mrs Foster's unmistakable silhouette through the frosted glass panel struggling with the catch. She does not like being disturbed of an evening and it will show. The door opens. She has never looked so lovely. The silent look up and down and then look up again lasts some time as I'm sure I detect the hint of a smile on her full but cracked lips. Don't look Ethel. Then we get a withering reaction. If you had out to show it might have been worth it. Get to your rooms. I furtively turn to look back as we're climbing the stairs. There's a broad grin on her face as she slowly walks away, shaking her head. I had many colleagues, rooms and room companions over my three years at Mrs Foster's, but that first cohort was the one that lives in the memory. Just being with them broadened my horizons, as did following my course tutor's advice of reading different newspapers from your parents and conversing with people who challenge your beliefs. I had no trouble at all with that, because our family visits with Auntie Gladys, Robert, Martin, to wherever Uncle Tom was stationed, we were always encouraged to give our opinions. Be it Catrick, London, or somewhere in Germany, Uncle Tom would always seek our views, even as youngsters. He loved a rational argument, and made me comfortable with stimulating debate and disagreement. I can remember when, in 1969, we had to make our respective cases for whether or not we should go into the European common market. I'm sure if he were here now that he would be having an argument as to whether to remain in the EU. However, I'm sure we'd disagree agreeably, unlike the vicious discourse since the referendum in 2016 and our formal departure from the EU in January 2020.
Not everyone in the future would appreciate my ease with debate, but it's been part of making me what I am. Hopefully nowadays, I'm direct but kind, rather than confrontational. The boys in my digs all had their influence on me. Brian Potter, a trainee accountant, and Rob Marsh, a business study student, were both from the mining areas of the Midlands, Brian from Mansfield and Rob from Nottingham. They brought a different and balanced view on the industrial strife that culminated in the miners' strike a decade later. Tim Place was a traditionalist farmer's son from North Yorkshire who brought some enlightenment to life in a rural community, as well as the sound of a good brass band to contrast with Mark Keith Richards' guitar riffs. Derek was a trainee accountant from Hesel and the spitting image of a young swaggering Rod Stewart. However, it was my first roommate, Paul Wilkinson, who I remember the most. That is because he scared me shitless. Paul was slim, dark and clean cut, apart from a perfectly manicured beard, which made him a dead ringer for Manfred Mann. Rod and Manfred in the same house, rock on. Paul's buddy holly glasses and gleaming white teeth accentuated his nervous and stilted way of talking. He was from York and, like me, a weekday student. It was at mealtimes that he was really conspicuous. I thought I had a voracious appetite, but he made me look like a candidate for slimmer of the year. He ate as if he'd not eaten for a week, gulping down his food so quick that I doubt he even tasted it. The rest of us in the dining room would exchange glances of disbelief. It was his ritual at bedtime that affected me most, because I was worried that my first roommate away from home might be a mass murderer. After we'd turned in and put the lights out, as I lay silently awaiting sleep, Paul would begin a deep mumbling that developed into what seemed like a chance. I laid there willing myself to say something, but did nothing apart from listening to this scary mantra. There was nothing intelligible, just a malevolent mumble. I was always quite a nervous kid with regard to the supernatural, which was probably caused by my mum telling me to stay in your bedroom on a night for old Nick comes down from the loft hatch and inhabits the landing with his flaming eyes and big tail. With William Peter Blatty's novel The Exorcist soon to come into my life to really send me off, this was great preparation. I put up with it for a couple of weeks before deciding to confront it and take the risk of entering the dark world of a Friday night horror film. I girded my loins and confronted our Manfred. The mumble mantra had nothing to do with the supernatural or anything horrific at all. It was about bloody religion. Paul Wilkinson was a Mormon. He fasted to the point of starvation, which explained his eating habits, and had to say his prayers every night before sleep, hence the mumbling. For fuck's sake. As if having my sister in the God Squad wasn't bad enough, the three-day week introduced by the Heath government was a product of the industrial strife I mentioned earlier, and it gave us some fun, together with some inconvenience. Power cuts produced an eerie urban landscape at night when the candles were lit. The community spirit that always seems to emerge at times of great stress, combined with the innocence of youth, made it an adventure. Oh, and the birth rate went up, of course. Fitting in some training was essential because what I was getting in boot money from Bridlington Town FC really helped my student finances and I needed to be in the team. On Wednesdays when the students had a free afternoon and most socialised at the Students' Union, I would go for a run round Roundhay Park. 
This ritual included jogging, sprinting, sit-ups, press-ups, everything I could do without companionship and a ball. I'm sure that student life contributed to a drop in form and my exercise regime isolated me from the social side of student life. I was a real loner in Leeds where I just had to get through the week to be able to go home and live a bit on a weekend. This did have one positive benefit however as I dedicated myself through the week to my studies and assignments which made me a proper professional student. The bulk of the coursework on this BSc course in building was quite easy for me consisting mostly of maths and physics which, based on my A-level studies, were of a higher standard. It was perhaps relevant though that my favourite subjects were dabbling in law and psychology. Only the building construction module challenged me and being able to concentrate only on this aspect Monday to Thursday led me coming top of the class in the first year with a set of straight A's. This did not attract praise from the family to balance out the bollocking my mother gave me for the 11 plus result, but hey ho. It did, however, lead me to a trip to Lancaster University. Head of school Mr Grant had spoken to me for the first and only time. He was a snobby chartered civil engineer who wanted me to transfer onto the civils degree on the basis that it was more maths based and a level above what I was doing. Our course leader, the irrepressible and enthusiastic Mr Grisenthwaite, was a dyed-in-the-wool builder and wanted me to stick with his noble arts. He therefore arranged for me and Gareth Thomas, a gentle cerebral Welsh kid who came second in the academic standings, to go to Lancaster University where they were doing the only honours degree in building in the country. Much to our surprise, while there, as well as being shown around their impressive facilities, they asked us to see aspects of their first year exams. If that happened today, I'd tell them to sod off, but we were compliant teenagers back then, and we did as we were asked. During the process, I felt that the only thing lacking was some men in white coats with stethoscopes examining us while we rode through the afternoon. I remember saying to Gareth, Hey Gaz, I reckon they think we fiddle the exams back in Leeds. True or not, they offered us a place on their second year honours degree course starting the following September. Mr Grisenthwaite was at once ecstatic, then gutted because we both turned down their offer. I don't know Gareth's rationale, but I was settled in my routine of leaves during the week and hull on a weekend. I felt like a big fish in a small pond and therefore nailed on to get a good degree. That this was to be an ordinary degree rather than an honours didn't matter to me as there were so few BSCs in building around in those days. I was some to be thankful that I had settled for the status quo and continuity in my life, for things were about to be turned upside down. This first upheaval stemmed from an epic FA Cup tie between Britland Town and Scarborough that was to decide which of these two non-league clubs would appear in the first round proper. Scarborough, under the ownership of entrepreneur and impresario Don Robinson, who was later to take on Hull City, where the bigger club and on the brink of league football anyway. As a result, the Bridlington Town directors decided to waive the home advantage the draw had given us and switch the tie to Seymour Road Scarborough, in the expectation of a bigger crowd and hence a more profitable slice of the gate receipts. We played really well and the game was close with few chances for either side the critical one falling to me with just a few minutes to go and the game goalless. Graham Sellers on the left wing 
checked in on his right foot to deliver a cross into the penalty area where I was lurking. The ball took a wicked deflection and ended up zooming across in front of me at waist height. Instinctively I threw myself forward for a diving header, which I executed beautifully with the ball en route to the top corner and the winning goal. As I hit the ground, the Scarborough goalkeeper launched himself across the goal and I glimpsed his hand turn the ball over the bar for the best save that would ever thwart me. I lay in the mud, dazed by disbelief. The game ended nil-nil, a creditable result for us, or so I thought. Our big gentle giant of a class goalkeeper, Frank Leeson, did not agree. He immediately raced over to me in the changing rooms to pin me against the wall and berate me for missing our chance of victory and the appearance in the first round that he had always coveted. I thought I had done everything any striker could do in the circumstances and told him so. Bob Dennison intervened and calm was restored, but not for me. How unfair. I really like Frank, but came to the conclusion that it wasn't only your mum and dad that fucked you up, but your goalkeeper as well. The replay was again at Seymour Road, the first game being our home tie that we'd relinquished. This time, under the floodlights that used to be Hull Cities at Bulfrey Park, before the Harold Needler investment refurbished the stadium. It was another close game, which Scarborough won with a late goal from Jeff Barnby, father of England international Nicky. Both Bambys were wonderful players, but Nick of course gained the attention of football history with his part in England's 5-1 thrashing of Germany in 2001. I had a poor game, my only excuse being the eyesight troubles I had under the floodlights. I needed glasses for distances from being a teenager and knew through my college work that things were not getting any better, but what happened that night was a new experience. The lights exacerbated the problem as blurred flashes indicated something was radically wrong above and beyond the short-sightedness. I went to see an optician who advised me to see a specialist, which is how I ended up at the Albion Street offices of a Mr Ackfield. After his examination, he asked me to sit down at his office desk, where he explained that I had an unusual condition of the cornea called keratoconus. I asked him for the prognosis, and he replied, too calmly for my liking, it is possible that you will be blind by the time you are 30. Fab. I spent a couple of weeks edging round the house with my eyes shut, imagining what it would be like. But then my morale quickly recovered. For 18, you're just never going to reach the great age of 30, are you? And in my case, I had my football career to pursue. Wrong. We were playing away at Barton Town, and I was trying to recover my form and confidence. The game wasn't very old when a defender cleared the ball high in the air towards me, and I cushioned it on my left instep at the exact same time as one of their midfielders tried to volley it away upfield to safety. The bottom of my leg snapped outwards and sideways, and I knew immediately something was very wrong. They say you forget pain, but I can still feel it to this day. I was helped to the touchline where I experienced the usual inadequate magic sponge treatment and was encouraged to get up and try to run. I tried and fell straight back down. No ambulance was called. I lay on the touchline for the duration of the game and went back with the team to Hull. In those pre-Humberbridge days, that meant a long trip around the estuary to cross at the Boothbury Bridge in Goole and then onto the A63 into Hull. 
I was in such pain it was decided that I should go straight to the Hull Royal Infirmary while the rest of the lads went out for a beer. I remember noting at the time that it was exactly 12 hours after my injury that I was x-rayed. My dad was fuming at the lack of care and attention I'd received over those 12 hours, but I knew the score and tried to act braver than I was. The x-ray showed that I had a rather complex break of the bone just below the knee and a piece had sheared off and was detached and floating. An operation to screw it back was contemplated, but in the end they decided to put me in a full length pot to see if the piece of bone would go back naturally. A few days later I was x-rayed again and it was found luckily that the piece of bone had gone back into position and was knitting back into place. Lucky. My manager Bob Dennison visited me and could not stop shaking his head in sorrow as he viewed my full length plaster in disbelief. He didn't realise that it was as serious as it turned out to be, but he had a football club to run, so it was see you in a year Bob. My classmate Dennis Sewell was very kind and copied all the college notes for me over those eight weeks and we become closer as a result. Carol, my girlfriend, was very supportive and I actually think I dealt with it pretty well. Rehab was pathetic and nothing like it is now, but I stuck at it and was ready to start playing practice games again within a year. I made my long-awaited return in a late-season game in the sun at my beloved Queensgate, where I came on a sub and scored almost immediately with a lovely glancing header at the near post. My marker was tight to me as I got to the ball just before he did, but he left his mark. I ended up in a heap with him, and no skin left on my leading arm and bad knee. I finally had the battle scars to match my brothers that I'd craved back on the black shield of our childhood games in Devon Street. The press called it a fairy tale return. I called it a fairy fucking nightmare. After four happy years, it was my last goal for the Seasiders. Meanwhile, college was going well. My dad had spoiled me once more, buying me a little Volkswagen Beetle so I could avoid having to use public transport. And I had arranged my industrial training year back in Hull with George Hulton and Sons. The BSc in building was a four-year thick sandwich course with two years at college, followed by a year in industry and the final year back at college. While there was help with the placement, it was essentially your own responsibility. I was put in touch with Construction Industry Training Board in Hull, having made it known that I wanted to serve the industry year back home. The interview with the CITB was at Hull's offices on Hyperion Street, just over the North Bridge exiting the city centre, and I discovered there was a place up for grabs with its reputable local company. The guy who interviewed me was called Frank Markham. Ginger, with a military moustache and the air of a retired general, he seemed a throwback from a bygone age, especially when he told me that it would be a prerequisite for me to get my hair cut for things to be taken any further with George Hulton. What? I thought I'd left this crap back at Cottingham Secondary Modern and certainly didn't need another Eric Greenwood in my life. But I did like this guy and my instinct told me it was different here. My head said to tell him to piss off, but my heart said go ahead and it will be alright. Not for the first time in my life, my instinct proved to be sound, as Frank became a lifelong friend, mentor and father figure as I got a place at Holton as well as a place in his heart. During my year at this lovely family firm, I regressed to being a naughty schoolboy, boredom being my only excuse. 
I liked the people and the atmosphere, but what I was given to do during my planned progress through their departments was mainly trivial and demeaning, so I became the company prankster. Typical of this was at Christmas when everyone in the office had gone down to the local pub on the last day for festive drinks. I sneaked back into the office early, went into the gents' toilet cubicles and progressively locked them one by one from the inside to make them all appear engaged. The ruse worked well. Today, I would definitely have taken a group photo for Twitter of them all peeing into the central gully of the yard. Caption, Mr Dick shows the way. Managing Director Richard Hulton Sr. was known as Mr Dick and I was told at my induction that he must be addressed as such. I thought this was a wind-up until I heard somebody say the words that always made me giggle. His brother was Mr Peter and they co-inhabited the corner office with its wood-panelled walls and sumptuous furniture. It seemed that they had been together since nursery and would be forever serenely detached from Holmes' people and their work. Mr Peter had a son called Robert, who I was allocated to work beside in the accounts department on the usual menial stuff. Poor Robert was an eccentric, a delicate soul messed up by a public school education together with the weight of expectation in a traditional family business for which he was totally unsuited. He exhibited this by dressing in raggedy clothes with wild unkempt hair and his even wilder eyes. Had a Monty Python demeanour, always talking in riddles and saying things to shock, and you had a pretty alternative guy. If anyone had told me he was sleeping rough, I would have believed them. I felt desperately sorry for him, befriended him in his make-believe world, and still wonder how it worked out for him. He taught me that you can be privileged and yet still be a social victim. His cousin Richard was Mr Dick's son and was a different deal altogether. A graduate destined to succeed his father as managing director, he knew he was heir apparent. I went on an exciting mission with him during the construction strike of 1973, when I was selected to be part of a strike-breaking task force, feeding the sites with plants and material, thereby confounding the pickets. It was like a game of cops and robbers, which I found huge fun. Richard and his management team, on the other hand, were ruffled and stressed if not a little scared. I was brought up with Sewell family shenanigans, so wasn't phased at all. I even teased shop steward Stan Sudderby when we robbers evaded his cops. Management saw Stan as the enemy, whereas I thought he was a pussycat who could do with toughening his act up a bit if we were going to prolong the fun. As I've noted already, this was a time of industrial strife, when management and unions were set against each other with mistrust and ideological differences at issue as much as employee well-being, local stewards generally being the bogeymen. I have to say that during all my time in the industry, I have had absolutely no trouble with any union. I've always found them constructive, keen to find solutions and helpful dealing with the odd knobhead of a worker that needed to be sorted out. From Stan Sudderby at Houghton to Vince Constable, or Vincent as I playfully used to call him, later at FSO Builders, and all the heavies I had at the start of the Selby Coalfield project, I got on with them all really well. Maybe it was because I felt as working class as them, and wanted their members, my employees, to be treated as well as practically possible. Why wouldn't you? 
There were a couple of rock stars at Halton who were in business development working on the Butler Building franchise they had at the time. Top man Malcolm Webster was flash. With so many extras on his company car, it was like a showroom demo bling fest. John Maris was younger, easygoing, affable and did most of the work. He also spent a lot of time travelling backwards and forwards to East Grinstead, having treatment on his eyes to try and save his sight. Hindsight tells me I maybe should have been more interested as I was facing a similar challenge, but it also suggests that I was in denial and just getting on with my life. During that industrial training year at Hulton, it was what John and Malcolm was doing as they created a discrete business unit that interested me most, rather than any of the building and accountancy stuff. At the end of an undergraduate placement, it was normal practice for Mr Dick to call the student into his inner sanctum for their second meeting in order to wish them farewell and ceremonially offer them a place back at Hulton after they graduated. My meeting with the old boy didn't go quite like that, for he specifically said that there would be no place at his company for me. I put it down to the possibility that he didn't much like peeing in the yard gully. Some people are really sensitive. Many years later, I told the current MD, Richard Hulton Jr. this story, but from my position at the head of their hugely successful rival, Sewell Construction. I had indeed created a business unit of my own by then, and a pretty significant one that was now setting the agenda for the construction industry in the city. Richard simply would not believe that his father had passed upon the chance of recruiting me, insisting that there must have been another reason. I assured him that this had indeed happened and reminded him that talent comes in many different wrappers. Around this time of rehab and comebacks, I decided to do my football coaching qualifications with top local FA coach Mike Rodin, who ran courses a couple of times a year for a dozen or so prospects. I was delighted that my old English teacher Stan Cox was also on the course. I'd forgotten how much I liked him. He agreed that it was useful for me to do a coaching badge while still a student. The teachers had the drop on the rest of us when it came to the assimilation and impartation of knowledge, but they couldn't play the game and struggled with the practical aspects and demonstrations. Mike used me almost exclusively for the practical skill stuff and must have thought I was a fairly decent player because he took me to North Ferriby United when he later became the manager there. We had to coach 14 year olds in the workshops and I found that I had a real aptitude for this kind of work. In fact I believed at the time that I could be a better coach than I was a player. I passed the exams with flying colours thanks to a little help from Stan on the theory questions. I even earned a little money by subsequently training the Leeds University team on a weeknight. This experience was really useful when later I entered leadership positions in business life. I became aware that sport has so much to teach business in the acquisition and management of talents. Coaching and mentoring came years late to the commercial world and still falls short of where it should be. We promote to management positions based on technical competence rather than leadership qualities and here all those years ago I had to prove that I could coach and lead before contemplating doing it. As a retiring lead student I was coming round to the notion that it would be best never to stop changing, learning or being inquisitive in the life that lay ahead of me.